Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. All right. So we are here at Consensus Invest week after Thanksgiving, one of the most bloody weeks that we've seen in cryptocurrency. You're being so dramatic, Jill. Um, It's interesting. You know, last year I was at this event um, and so many people, so much hype. Everyone is rushing to talk to one another. And this year it's pretty, pretty quiet. Yeah, it's pretty subdued. But I, would, I wouldn't say it's funereal, but there are a lot of men in black suits walking around. Uh, I'm wearing all black today. I came dressed for, for the market. Yeah. <laughs> but look, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Um, we have a lot of interesting things happening in this industry. And I think, again, having lived through this in 2015, where, you know, Bitcoin went up to 1200, everyone's like, oh my God, we're rich. Look at us. This is so cool. Um, And then we went back down to, you know, 150 and then leveled out at 200 and stayed there for two years. Yeah. I mean, that was between 2013 and basically 2017 Mm -hmm. that that all happened. Yep. Um, But I think this is a good time to ask ourselves some tough questions. As I mentioned to you, I'm actually, you know, writing a little piece for myself called I'm Dumb that focuses on some of the mistakes I made in 2018. Um, Because look, it's important to take a look back and say, why did this happen? How did this happen? And how do I change my behavior, my mental models to learn. I think um, one of the challenges, I just don't feel like we ever learn. (laughs) Yeah. So let's, let's get into that. Why is this happening? Why is this happening right now? There have been a lot of parallels made between now and 2013, 2014, which, Mm -hmm. which I remember too. I remember I thought that I was a huge genius and then felt like a huge idiot. Genius you. Uh, I felt like a huge idiot for the following year and a half, two years, which is part of what was the catalyst for me to actually dig in and figure out what the hell this stuff was, what the technology was. Do you feel vindicated now? Do I feel vindicated now? I felt vindicated about six months ago. <laughs> and now you I'm, feel dumb again. Yeah, I, I, I am starting to, to come back down into, uh, you know, the, the humble zone. Sure. But I think that this time is a bit different. And I think I think that because of what's going on in the macro market as well. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that cryptocurrency is suddenly correlated to the NASDAQ or the S&P or any other asset class. It remains uncorrelated. But the reality is, is that we're seeing a drag down in the global markets as well. No asset class is going up right now. OK, so so let's just to give this some substance and some structure. I think um, four key things we want to talk about today is one, let's talk about the macro market and how we're seeing kind of fear and doubt creep in there and what the meaning might be for crypto because we don't live in an isolated bubble. Um, so that's one. Two, let's talk a little bit about forking and the madness of what's happened over the last year. Governance. Right? Governance. Yep. Um, then let's talk about investor behavior. We've talked a lot about how VCs very dirty business. And um, as you so aptly put it, we're blending venture capital with Wall Street here and the results are pretty ugly. So let's talk about deal structures and what that means for markets. 
And then I think the last topic, let's just talk broadly about brand building and what compels people and what that means for business models. Because right now, the only business model in crypto that actually works is speculation. That's right. Yeah. So we'll start we'll start from the very big and get into the very micro. Uh, but as we were saying, you know, in the broader markets over the last few weeks, we're suddenly back to flat on the year after broader equity markets were up between 10 and 20%. I know my 401k makes me very sad. Yeah, everyone is out here crying over their crypto holdings and I'm looking at my my stock portfolio and I'm like, "Wait, this is what I'm actually worried about." We're the dum-dums who still own equity. Um, but I have a 401k. I contribute to it. Um, I think it's important to be diversified. But I think what, what I always look at is what are institutional investors doing? So we look at hedge funds, the l- sort of spiritual leaders of the equity investing world and the commodities world um, and alternative assets. Hedge fund managers are not having a good year. It's not been a great year underperforming, a lot of pressure on fees. Um, and on the retail side as well, we're seeing fear and doubt creep in. As I mentioned before, BlackRock has had its first quarter of net outflows, meaning there's now more money leaving that asset manager than money flowing in. And that's an important sign. Typically, when that starts to happen, it's people deleveraging, taking money off the table. And Larry Fink, the CEO of, of BlackRock, who's very respected in sort of macro finance world, one of his comments around these outflows and BlackRock's general performance last quarter was what they're seeing across the board is investors are uncertain. Investors are looking at the world and they're feeling fear and doubt. Where do we go from here? And yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because if you look at, you know, the broader fundamentals, things still look pretty good. You know, rates are low. We're almost at full employment in the United States. Like the, the fact that Uber can good. exist and lose a billion dollars a quarter and continue to raise billions of dollars, we're we're fine. <laughs> yes and no. We're it's fine. it's starting to wobble though now. And you know the not enough. The leading Jill. the leading indicator is as you say, just follow the money. Where are their inflows? Where are their outflows? And we're in an environment right now where no asset class is rising, and we're seeing that and feeling that in the crypto markets. And I think that the crypto markets might be the canary in the coal mine here mm. because we have mm. to go back even ten years. To 2008 and and trace what's happened across all of these asset classes since then. And what we've seen is a system in which liquidity has just been pumped into every economy worldwide. Right. That's what happens when you print money, right? Rates so we been, joke about people printing been, shit coins. Rates have been super low for the <laughs> last 10 years. Um, it's led to this hunt for yield. It's led money to be dumped into everything from emerging markets to high beta tech stocks to, dumb shit. to venture capital <laughs> to cryptocurrency. Yep. And cryptocurrency was almost the illogical conclusion of all of this, mm-hmm. I think, over the last year. The reason why we saw this huge run up in crypto, it wasn't because of some big breakthrough in the technology. It wasn't because suddenly we all learned how to fit in and attend conferences and sell people on it. What it was, was it just the the conclusion of this hunt for yield. And now we're starting to see the unwind of this. EM is underperforming. Tech stocks are underperforming. The pound is under crypto pressure. is yep massively underperforming. And so as we start to see the unwind of of this, you know, I think that we're potentially just at the beginning stages here of a real global macro unwind of the risk on that we've experienced. I think it's difficult though to talk about an unwind in an environment um 
where central banks and governments, this issue is of growth, right, has plagued every country for a long time. China's grappling with this now. They have a tremendous amount of debt, just massive um, at the government level, at the institutional level, and at the consumer level. Chinese consumers have more debt than ever. We saw this in the housing crisis in the US. People had more debt than ever. You look at student debt in the US. I'm in my 30s. I have friends who are in their 30s who are still paying off undergrad loans, who will never be able to afford a home, who will never really have financial stability, even though they earn six figures a year. We're living in an environment environment where everything feels overpriced, feels expensive. I think there are a lot of existential questions, philosophical questions that people are asking. And I like to joke that in crypto, sometimes I I do feel like an armchair philosopher. But to your point, I think because this is an isolated environment that largely, whether good or bad, has been a great test bed for some of these ideas because it is fairly isolated and doesn't really interact with macro markets historically hasn't at least um, that much. I think it's just so interesting to watch how psychology impacts the way people think and behave. Hence why I'm writing this blog post for myself called I'm Dumb and maybe I'll share it um, because it's really about untangling psychology and belief from fact. And I think if you look at the cold hard facts, which is the point you're making, the numbers don't look good. That's right. And we're starting to see this at the very macro level with growth slowing down. We're starting to see this at the company level where, you know, earnings are still coming in pretty positively, but not as not as positively as people were expecting in this market. I think and we're seeing that even at the crypto level now, too, perhaps especially at the crypto level where people are taking a look at their holdings and asking themselves, what was I thinking? Why did I buy this? Dumb, as I said, Um, I want to distill that a little bit, right? So there's these facts. People are looking at their portfolios. People like us are looking at their 401ks, zero. That doesn't feel good because you're used to seeing, you know, on average, 7 to 10% a year. So that feels bad. People are looking at companies um, eh, not feeling maybe great about job security. We're seeing cuts being made across the board. People are looking at governments. People are looking at lending rates. Ugh, not feeling good. People are looking at real estate prices. I live in New York. Um, not feeling good, right? Everyone's talking about, oh, there's going to be a big market downturn. So I think if you look across the board, what that does to a person's psychology, the way they react to it is really what matters. And one of the things I've spoken about before, one of my favorite fancy words to use, because I took the SCT and God damn it, I'm going to get some value out of all that time I put in, is this word homophily, right? And homophily is a fancy way of saying like-mindedness. The problem with crypto and the problem with this little bubble is we're all like-minded. We read the same blogs. We go on the same websites. We're looking at the same data. We all think alike. And these tokens and these protocols are owned by the same people. And we're all exposed to the same things. And we have a group of people that are psychologically very alike, that spend a lot of time reading, interacting with one another. It's a very socially driven community, right? It's very much about the word community itself. The fact that we talk about community and not companies is, is an indication of how tribal this is and how persistent this homophily is. So what you get when you have a bunch of people who are feeling fear and doubt, there's fear and doubt across the board, is you get people panicking. Yeah, I I think that's right. And, you know, suddenly people feel poor in a way that they didn't a year ago, six months ago. That's interesting. And that's, that's changing the decisions that people are making about how to allocate their capital. You know, I, I think that's spot on what you say about checking your 401k. 
you do that and suddenly you don't feel quite as confident and wealthy as you were six months ago when the market was up, you know, 10, 12, 15%. And and I'm talking about equities markets there. But I also look at my portfolio. So I've been holding Bitcoin for a long time and some other assets, but my philosophy has always been cost averaging in. Um, I think the interesting challenge now is you have all of these people who are personally, professionally, at every level exposed to this market. And it felt great during a bull run because the money is flying in every bucket. But when you no longer have cash in the bank, real people pay their bills with cash. And unless you live in Ohio, you're paying your taxes in cash. (laughs) Exactly. And um, the principles of finance, and I, I sound so stodgy when I say this, but you know, I love theory. I love academia is so fun. Um, I want to be a professor someday. I feel sorry for my students. Go back and get your PhD. (laughs) Well, I already have two useless degrees, so I might as well get a third. Um, Pay for that privilege (laughs) from our hallowed (laughs) academic institutions. But I think um, one of the things that's been missing in in crypto is fun fundamentals. And I say that word kind of laughing because it's difficult to define fundamentals in this thing we don't really understand well. But one of the areas I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, and again, we're going to share some of this in the show notes, is corporate finance. Finance works a certain way, right? You have balance sheet of assets, liabilities, and equity. Um, when you when you get assets on your balance sheet, either by, you know, in most cases, company would earn revenue. In crypto, there is no revenue earning business model other than speculation. So people sold speculative interests in these projects by selling tokens. So you get assets on that side of the balance sheet and you have this treasury of tokens. We've talked a lot about Ripple's massive multi-billion dollar treasury. That's money they printed out of thin air like a central bank might, except they don't have an army or an economy to defend it, which, you know, yeah. Hey, they, they have an army. <laughs> they have an <laughs> army of bots on Twitter. <laughs> oh my God, is this the future? Oh, maybe I should freeze my brain now. Um, Hash wars are the new wars. Oh, God. No, no, no. Um, but, but if we look at that, right? So you have assets on one side of the balance sheet. But on the other side of the balance sheet, you're not incurring debt. You're not returning principal to anyone. You're not promising you know, future repayment. You're not giving up equity because these people don't have access to your balance sheet. They don't own IP. They own nothing, arguably. And again, I'm dumb going back and reading some of the SAFs that I personally signed. Um, luckily, not so many of them because I figured out I was dumb fairly quickly. But if you look at them, you actually get nothing. The The contract that you sign expressly says you get nothing. So what do you actually incur? Well, number one, legal fees, because all of the lawyers and the advisors and the service providers are getting paid. Advisory is still a great business model, even in times of distress. Two, you get regulatory overhang because everyone's now shitting their pants because they're terrified of the SEC, as they should be. In the US, the government can ruin your life. Um, And then the third thing you have on the liability side of the balance sheet is you have a community debt. You have all of these people that believed in your project, whether they believed it because they were looking for financial return or because in some way they were bought into the ideology, which I think is unique about crypto. People do buy into the ideology, which makes them unpredictable and harms the psychology of a normal investor, myself included. Um, But you have these three components, right? So you have all these liabilities that people are now waking up to. And the question is, to your point about the great unwinding, within our little bubble, we're going to have to figure out how to unwind the billions of dollars of cash that went into ICOs that haven't hit the market yet. Those tokens that people bought have been booked on their funds balance sheet at cost, or in some cases at a markup, which I find 
Um, interesting. So how do we unwind $30 billion of undigested tokens that haven't even come to market yet? And how do we unwind $120 billion of crypto assets that people just don't really understand well? I think Bitcoin people feel strongly about. I personally understand the fundamentals of Bitcoin as well as anyone reasonably can, given how young it is. But all of this other stuff, how do we unwind that? That is the question we're asking ourselves how do we unwind what we've created without destroying the thing itself? Or do we need to kill the things we love, hit reset and start over? How do we unwind on a micro scale and on a macro level, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that we're starting to get into some of these more micro issues that I want to dive into a bit further. And it's really, you know, as, as you and I have both said, investors looking at, at their portfolios and being like, holy shit, what what have I done? Why? I and- bought Telegram at 1.7 billion <laughs> with an insane valuation. What what are you getting for that 1.7 billion? But so did billion? every major VC fund. So you, well, you can we'll get keep in, that. You we'll get into that investing later. But, uh, you but know, talk so about the unwinding. Like investor, investor behavior and deal structures are very important parts of all of this. And something that you brought up just now is what did you end up with? Well, nothing. Investor rights were not baked into any of these things. Uh, you know, OK, if you if you did a SAFT, if you got some form of equity, then hopefully you're a bit better protected. But especially all of the ICOs that were done that were targeted at retail, you have no rights. And there was still a cost for the issuers sure. of these tokens. But arguably, the cost of capital being so low is why people chose to pursue the ICO route. And um, we can delve into the cost of capital, various forms of capitalizing a business or an idea. I think the unwinding is is going to look like this. And I'm going to get my crystal ball out um, and we can laugh about how dreadfully wrong I was about everything, as I normally am. Um, but, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, Jill. So I'm going to go for it. Here's what I think is going to happen. Number one, we're seeing projects that realize their token is absolutely useless. Think about what do I do to repay this debt I've incurred? How do I make people whole or how do I at least salvage my reputation? I think one part of that, we've seen people take tokens and convert it into equity ownership, which is difficult in the US because of existing law around who can buy equity in in private sales. So that's one model. We've seen some people convert their tokens into product use tokens where people get free memberships or free service in a product that may or may not exist. So trying to give people some substantive book value that then just isn't just the cost you paid for this esoteric token, right? It really goes down to how do you put this shit on your balance sheet? Um, How do you account for it at the end of the day? How do you mark that asset as a holder of it? Um, So we're seeing people trying to convert tokens into something potentially useful in the future. We're seeing people do refunds, right? So the SEC um, working with Paragon, I forget the other project to um, refund investors through rescission is is interesting. Um, But a lot of projects may not have that luxury because they were so exposed to overall crypto. We've talked about treasury at length and won't bore people with that. So we'll see some refunds, I think. And then really the question is for protocols who want to grind it out, got to do the hard work. It'll be interesting to see who does that, especially when founders, I think budgets are going to be under scrutiny. People are starting to ask questions about why a project that raised 20 million is 
throwing, you know, a $10,000 party with investor money. But I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny. So people who got into the ICO game to make money were paying themselves three, $400,000 salaries, numbers that make my eyes bleed. Um, they're going to have a reality check. And the question is, when that reality check comes, are you willing to dig down like when all the conferences stop and this echo chamber of us running around patting each other on the back saying, oh, my God, that's so great. That's so great. When all of that stops and you sit down at your laptop at 9 a.m. on Monday morning and you look at the work ahead of you, are people going to dig down and do the hard work? And this is this is one big problem that we can see coming up, too, is, you know, there are a lot of people who came into the market over the last year who got in because because of the hype, basically. And they wanted to extract value without creating value. And I don't even think that they would frame it like that, sure. right? Like they would frame it as like, oh no, it's this exciting new area. Like I want to get involved and add value. It's a combination of a bunch of my interests, blah, blah, blah. But I pay my but bills. But then when the, music, when the music <laughs> stops, as you say, it's like, okay, are you really interested in this? Like, are you interested enough to ride this thing down to not zero, but you know, down to the lows? And and stick with it and grind through. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of a lot of individuals and this is going to have ramifications at the company level, whether you're Coinbase, who I'm guessing, you know, like 80 percent of the company at this point is probably joined within the last year or whether you're a new founder who just finished their fundraise last summer, yeah. like. Do you, actually, do you want to be here? Do well, you want to be here now? So I was actually talking to some executives yesterday um, at some of the larger firms in the space, and they were chatting about how they've been sending emails to employees, um, especially new joiners, just about what's happening in the market to try to assuage their fears. I actually really, I, I have a lot of empathy for people who got really excited, who got really sucked in. I remember being at an event in January and there's this lovely woman I was chatting with and she told me that after speaking to someone who shall go unnamed, she was convinced Ethereum was the future and was going to sell her house and put all her money into Ether. And it's behavior like this that is really concerning to me. Um, all of these people who got in, you know, they have lives, they have families, they, and they pay their bills in cash. And when the money train stops, I think the question is what happens next? And I, I do feel badly because a lot of people got way over their skis, whether it's retail or funds or investors. Um, I myself, fortunately, you know, realized my behavior and I was like, Ooh, I got to stop this. This isn't good. And refocused on the one thing I, I do know, which is, companies, right? I know how to yeah. build companies and spot companies. Um, but it's, it's really, really hard. So we've talked a lot about the music stopping on the companies themselves, but the music is also stopped on the investors. And I want to return to this broader question of sure. what's going on. Why is this happening? Why is this happening now? And I think a lot of it does have to do with deal structures. So we talked a little bit about like what have investors ended up with? Actually, mm -hmm. they had no rights on any of these things. Um, these things were not structured in a traditional VC sort of fashion, which mm -hmm. has generally a lot of investor protections built in. And mm -hmm. also, you know, you're dealing with an asset manager who's a professional at taking this really, really high level of risk. Well, in they read term sheets and negotiate 
terms. Exactly. But that didn't happen in any mm. of these ICOs, whether you're talking about an ICO that was done targeting retail investors, whether you're talking about one of these SAFs that was really just a party round of every angel in the valley. <laughs> I'm going like, to say something mean, and I don't mean it to sound mean, but it's mean. Um, I actually think retail investors are more scrupulous with who they gave their money to than VCs were. I think that's 100 percent true. And I wouldn't say VCs. I wouldn't say like the traditional crypto funds. VCs, but the crypto funds and yeah. the angel investors and, uh, you know, all of these all of these kind of thought leaders that you can probably find on the Internet. But so that's one aspect of it. Are is we these thought in- leaders? Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> uh, these investors who have ended up with actually no rights over any of these things. Right. And then there's another dynamic here that I want to bring up as well. I was reading an article. Uh, it was a piece, an academic kind of piece called Dot Com Mania mm-hmm. that was written in 2001. Um, and it's it's trying to unpack why the dot-com bubble burst when it did because there wasn't any bad news that came out there was no global macro market unwind there was no it wasn't like all of a sudden you know people were disappointed in pets.com and all of these companies they'd invested in and in fact (laughs) in fact a lot of it has to do with kind of the microstructure of these deals where a lot of lockups came undone all kind of around the same period in 2000, 2001, where it, it's not that suddenly the hodlers of, <laughs> of these tech stocks suddenly became bearish. It was that there was a new class of hodlers introduced into the market who wanted to get liquidity and uh-huh. sell. Um, and so I think that investor lockups and kind of deal structures also has a lot to do with what we're seeing right now. The other bellwether, I think, um, for the internet bubble, if you'll call it that, um, was CGI, um, or it was ICG internet capital group. When they started doing 60, when they started taking down 60% of the capital raise, when they started doing these deals where they were the majority investor by a massive degree, I think that's always problematic because again, as I've said many times, speculators, investors, they are not users. And I think because of this VC culture and this Silicon Valley culture that has permeated crypto, whether for good or for bad, the focus is always, oh, we raised money. And here are the great names of people who gave us their money. But guess what? Andreessen Horowitz, and I think they're phenomenal investors. They've done very well at sort of selling things and making lots of money for their investors. Your investors are fiduciaries and they may philosophically support your project and VCs can get on stages and talk about, you know, how philosophically aligned they are with Bitcoin. But the end, the end of the day, their job is to be fiduciary and to make money for their LPs. And your investors are not users of your product. You raising money from a bunch of really great, sophisticated investors does not mean you have made it. And I think we conflated the two. And the thing is, at the end of the day, investors are going to do what's best for them. And I've seen this repeatedly through my last four years of sort of working on the venture side. This is one of the reasons why I took no money to do my own investing. I'm investing my own money only into equity companies because I get to decide and it's my capital. So I'm not putting anyone else at risk. I have agency. And a lot of people like to write about the theory of the firm and agency and all this stuff. But if you go back and read Coase, go back and read Fama, like people have studied behavioral finance for the last 50 fucking years for a reason, because incentives matter. This is why governance exists. This is why term sheets matter. That's why any deal structure, my first question is who's on the board, who makes decisions, what are the rights reading that governance fucking matters. 
and the fine print matters, right? 100%. And no one was reading the fine print. And, you know, I, I used to be a distressed trader. I used to trade distressed yeah. credit. All I did half the day, was it read. wasn't shouting buy, sell and all of that exciting shit. It was reading through the fine print of legal documents. Yeah, to find a way to fuck someone. Along with our compliance team to try and figure out what our rights were if we held these Or how bonds. to unfuck yourself. But yeah. I, I want to back up to something that you were just talking about as well, which is that raising capital is not the same as shipping a product. Yeah. Having investors is not the same thing as having users. And this is a problem that I see so clearly in Silicon Valley, which is this tech crunch kind of culture of like getting on the cover just because you've done a big fundraise, just because Sequoia backed you. Mm -hmm. And that is bullshit because you have not actually achieved anything if you've done that other than convince a handful of bros in a room that you're you're going to make the money the well you're going to make the money make it's about money. making money exactly but i think so going back to your theme now as i think about your thought process on this being sort of the the belt the canary in the coal mine or you know reading the tea leaves this is a microcosm of what will happen on a macro scale this is exactly it look at the fangs right um the bulk of trading that happens are these mega stocks, um, some of which, you know, earlier this year had one trillion dollar valuations. I mean, when I worked at ExxonMobil, it was the largest company in the world, and we had a four hundred billion dollar market cap. Um, and I thought that was a lot of money, and that's nothing compared to these these fang stocks. But you look at those, like what at the end of the day does Facebook or Google ship? They're adver- they create free products and sell advertising. They're selling their users. We're learning that's not a sustainable business model, and we can get into antitrust and some of the other fun, interesting political things um, will happen. So, all of these tech stocks, like. What what is the business model? And this is a struggle on a global macro scale. Like, what is the business model? What is sustainable? The fact of the matter is, if you look at some of the businesses in crypto, the most valuable businesses are speculative trading businesses. And these businesses, it's just traders trading against each other. That's the market right now. It's people with bags trading. It's gambling. Against, it's straight up gambling. It's people playing against each other and playing against the house. Um, and much love to to Bitmex, but that's what Bitmex is: people gambling. And so, again, the question is, what is this actually useful for? And I don't want to sound too down. I feel like we also need to, like, why are you and I sitting here even having this conversation? Why do we even try, Jill? I'm extremely excited about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. The fact that I have the choice now to hold Bitcoin and the fact that I can hold it and interact with it and interact with the network to actually push transactions to anyone in the world without needing to trust them like this, this perfectly beautiful adversarial social model is amazing. But a lot of this stuff people are doing doesn't make any sense at all. There's no business model. There's no need for it. And I feel like we're reinventing a bunch of shitty businesses that never worked in the past and just plugging in new tech, hoping it'll make it work. But this is the big question. And this is why people laugh at investors. People say, oh, yeah, being investor is so easy. It's actually not because you have to figure out what is a business model that works. And that's hard. It really is. Totally. And and that's why right now, in particular, I am by far and away most bullish on the crypto assets, or maybe I should say the crypto asset that doesn't have a business model, which is Bitcoin. Because if we think about what is going to happen if we do see this macro market unwind of deleveraging the system, of of people coming to the realization that the economy globally is overheated. Like, you know, again, 
unemployment is down to what, 4% mm-hmm. here. Rates have been low for the last 10 years. Right. We're starting to see Money's markets free. <laughs> markets are panicking at the idea of a quarter point of 25 basis points right. of, of hike mm-hmm. from the Fed. Yeah. Like, Markets should not be panicked at that. And the Fed keeps delaying, understandably. Um, so, but, there, but just to finish my thought mm-hmm. there, in that kind of market where we're suddenly starting to have the sense of like, oh, is inflation ticking up? Mm-hmm. You know, is is the market uh, overheated? What outperforms in that market? Things like gold, things that are mm-hmm. inflation resistant and you know, I, I think, unfortunately, the market is not yet at a point of sophistication where it can understand that Bitcoin does have that sort of parallel value to gold. Mm-hmm. I think it's more likely to be put in the ultra high risk category still. But if there is any chance that any of these assets are seen as a flight to safety, it's going to be Bitcoin. I I want to talk about Bitcoin for a little bit. Um, So it's it's really interesting to me with each new wave of people that come into um, the Bitcoin community, if you will, uh, how the narratives sort of change and what people focus on. And I think, unfortunately for Bitcoin, a lot of the narratives as of late um, or really in like 2017, 2018 have been rooted in morality. Um, and this is not about morals or ethics. Um, there was a great article in Garage, which is a, a magazine um, that talked about Bitcoin. And one of the quotes in there was from our good friend. Eric Meltzer, um, a primary VC, who said a lot of people bought Bitcoin to be the type of person who owns Bitcoin, not because they actually understood or really valued any of the properties of Bitcoin, but because it's like it's a fashionable thing to do, which is not a bad thing per se. But I go back to this. Um, I'm looking it's a luxury good. It is a luxury good. It absolutely is. Um, And people who it's like you have the luxury of being able to buy something that's digitally scarce. It's like people who buy modern art. Modern art is also a statement people make someone buying. I've been reading a lot about Damien Hirst lately. Um, For those who don't know, Damien Hirst is the British artist who became famous because he put a shark in a tank of formaldehyde. He bought a shark for $25,000 from a fisherman in Australia, put it in a tank of formaldehyde and sold it to Stevie Cohen, who runs a hedge fund. Um, for a crazy like twelve or thirteen million dollars, so just because someone takes something and puts it in a tank of formaldehyde and can then sell it for um, like fifty x what they paid, way more than what they paid for it, it's a great exercise in like consumer consume. It's a great uh, what do you say? Hold on, we'll cut this bit. It's a great exercise. Mm. It's a satirical take on modern consumer culture. But if we think about um, the things that actually make Bitcoin interesting and valuable, I do think we're in the early stages of the adoption curve. People don't actually know what's going on. They don't know what they're buying. But um, each time that the tech changes and evolves, each time there are new experiences that enable people to understand Bitcoin, like everyone has that aha moment where they're like, oh, oh, I'd never thought about that. And now this makes sense. I had mine um, in 2012. But I think, again, for most people, that aha moment's not happening. And so actually, I think we're already at mass adoption for Bitcoin for its current addressable market. With the current applications and products and services, Bitcoin has already reached the entire target audience it'll reach. In order for us to reach new users and new actual people who 
are invested in this emotionally, psychologically, and thinking about building businesses, we need new products that create new experiences that change where we are in that adoption curve. And really what growth looks like, it's a series of curves built on top of each other, not one mass curve. I feel like that's what people aren't getting here. Like, yes, Bitcoin's not that useful today. It's probably not going to be for the next 10 years. But honestly, if Bitcoin never changed, for me, it is still really useful. It, the addressable market right now is so small. And so to me, investing in things that create new user experiences, a lightning node where you can push your own transactions to the network, where you can create little micropayment channels with a bunch of your friends instead of using Venmo, like these things are interesting. We're just not doing a really good job at that because we got distracted by 2017 and 2018. Yeah, that's right. I mean, fundamental value is built off of the backs of users, right? And right now, as you pointed out earlier in the show, the only users are speculators. And that's that's not a real parallel that we can draw or that's not a real equation that we can draw. Speculators are not actual users. They're users of Coinbase. They're users of BitMEX and yes. Kraken and, and Circle Binance, and so on. And Binance, of course. Long but, live CZ. <laughs> but they're not users of the cryptocurrencies for what they are. No, I, but it it. it Ultimately, it doesn't matter because speculators can be very useful in capitalizing some of these things. And if we look at where people are, are making money, my thesis for the next five to 10 years, the institutions are not coming. They're only coming if there's speculation. And the market dropping from 800 billion to 100 billion total means that the size of the pool of speculators way down. They have way more to worry about, like Goldman and this one MDB thing. You can bet every bank right now is checking their internal emails because <laughs> that shit show is going to get real ugly. Yep. Um, it's And so there are all these things happening. They're not worried about crypto stuff. And they don't, they don't really also, care. as we see volatility return to the, the normal markets, the equity markets, the bond yeah. markets, et cetera, people aren't going to be hunting for that volatility in the way that they were a year ago when they were pouring their money into crypto. Yeah. So I think um, if you if you look at the institutions, I think that narrative's kind of yeah, there will be a small audience who cares about holding crypto, but the way people are going to get exposure is as follows. One, through structured products. So, you know, little coin shares promo, that's the backbone of the Quinchers business, but there are a bunch of other people doing this in new and interesting ways. But there are going to be products that both retail and institutions buy because they don't want to think about crypto. They just want an asset manager to manage it for them. And maybe one that educates them in the process and they'll feel smarter and they can go to cocktail parties and talk about crypto. Great. So we'll have products. Then we'll have crypto funds. And I really think VC and coin trading should be two separate things. They, they can't really interact because they're fundamentally so different. It's very different skill sets, very different mental models. Um, but there are going to be people who actively manage token portfolios and engage in speculative trading. And there are going to be people who deploy long-term capital in the form of VC funds. And we already have a lot of great examples of both funds that are doing it well, funds that are not doing it well, whatever. Then people are going to invest directly in companies. So Bitmain, fingers crossed, maybe we'll IPO. People have exposure to Galaxy through this um, Canadian RTO they did, which say what you will, but all of these things give people ways to get exposure to the market in different ways. Right? That's, that's what people want. They want ways to play that make sense for their risk profile. And again, that they can put on their balance sheet. These are things people understand. They can get through a risk review committee and an asset manager. So it makes sense. Um, and then the last piece is like public equities. If you look at Square, Square's stock price more than doubled on the news of their crypto product launch integrating into the cash app. Um, whether or not there are fundamentals there that are substantiating that pump, look at NVIDIA, right? NVIDIA was selling out of yep. GPUs. Whether it's narratives people create, look at Overstock, right? Overstock, every time Patrick Byrne gets out there and says something about crypto, price pumps and then drops again. But again, there are ways that people are thinking about value creation. Um, and to me, for the next five to 10 years, like very few people have the appetite to hold this stuff directly and use it. 
But if this is a growth market, we have to give people ways to play. And the question we really need to ask, if we live in a world where the four top businesses in crypto, Coinbase, Circle, BitMEX, Binance, and we can argue about that. Collectively, each of those companies has a multi-billion dollar valuation, and some of them have hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars of cash on their balance sheets. They're more valuable than 99.9% of the protocols themselves. So much for fat protocol theory. Look, I, I think having new frameworks, like credit to people who come up with new frameworks and new ideas, 100%. but we need to test them before we pump hundreds of billions of dollars into them. And that's why, again, this blog post called I am dumb is a good rem- <laughs> reminder. And, I mean, this is, this is something that I've said for the last year is you have so many brilliant people from finance, from tech, from, uh, you know, different ends of the investing spectrum. They looked at crypto last year and they all asked, what am I missing? What don't I get here? And the problem is, is that they were listening to narratives that they knew on some level didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to square that circle. Mm -hmm. And when they couldn't, they were like, well, you know, I guess I guess I just don't get it. But the reality is, is that for the most part, they were right. You know, and and we need more of that kind of critical thinking and we need that kind of critical thinking to be welcomed. And, you know, my hope is that this this kind of market downturn uh, it brings some of that rationality back in. But humans, Jill, are delightfully human, myself included. Um, the cognitive dissonance I experience on a daily basis is hilarious. I do things all the time that I know are bad for me. I know red wine is bad for me, but I find it delicious. So I continue drinking it um, in amounts that are, you know, exceed <laughs> the amount you need to get the health benefits. Um, but but look, I think that people are delightfully human. Speculation's never going to end. Things aren't going to make sense. People what people want psychologically is there's a big button, right? That's why people buy lottery tickets and gamble and do other dumb shit. People want a big button that they hit. And when they hit it, or if they hit it enough times, they get lucky and money comes out. And I think a lot of people who got into crypto in the last year or two, um, maybe their view was, oh, crypto, it's easy to make money. You know what? No, it's actually it's actually not. You have to work really fucking hard. I've spent four years in this industry and people like to make fun of me and troll me, but I work really hard. And you can ask my... And it's, it's not like, oh, I'm working all the time, but I put in the actual substance to try to figure out what's going on. You have to put in the substance. And a lot of the people who got into this have no idea what, what they're doing, but they're also not willing to do the work. And yeah. that's that's what troubles me is there are so many people who we hail as leaders who haven't put in the time. Like the fact that a person can get into crypto and go from being a no one to being on stages addressing crowds and have a massive Twitter following is a great example of how the stuff we're promoting, it's it's not built to last. Um, if we actually want to do something useful, I want to listen to people who have substance for building things. And there are a lot of great examples of that. As you pointed out in this community, there are a lot of people I really respect. They're not a hundred percent right on everything, but I want to listen to people who are doing things of substance and who have been doing them for some time and have grit. This is going to get really ugly. Yeah, I, I do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think that there's a chance that we're entering kind of a multi-year downturn here, you know, as we as we had in 14, 15, 16. And, you know, people will continue to find ways to innovate 
during during that downturn, people will continue to build and and hopefully actually ship. And, you know, I think that what we'll be left with is is actual, hopefully actual fundamental value that, you know, we we kind of know is there once you cut through the hype and the kind of fucked up deal structures and um, and all of the the kind of tourism that has gone on in the industry mm-hmm. over the last year. Mm-hmm. But again, I think there are people who are doing the work and I don't mind this taking time. I don't mind working on this. Um, I've never been paid a lot for anything I've done. So I, I'm not expecting, you know, huge paychecks or for this to be easy. I'm fine with the struggle. I think the really interesting thing to watch will be who's still here six months from now when the dust has settled. And I do think the overall crypto market cap, even at a hundred billion is probably overvalued for what it is, but, um, it'll be interesting, but, but let's talk more about unwinding. I feel like we, you know, we're, we all agree. I don't think anyone's in disagreement. Like we have problems and they need to get fixed and it's going to be painful. If we sum up this whole conversation, it's like, yes, this shit is fucked up. We did some real dumb stuff and now we have to figure out how to not be so dumb and do things that make not just sense. us though, the markets as a whole. Oh yeah. Well, look, humans have been doing dumb stuff for a long time. So have monkeys. What we do. I think sometimes creating chaos, like part of my MO, like I love chaos. Maybe we're all just addicted to pain and we're huge masochists, but Let's let's talk about where are we going to end up? Where are we going? As long as I get to keep hanging out with you, will you let me sleep on your couch when I'm broke? Always. Okay. You can sleep on I already do. I know. <laughs> um Yeah, I mean I think that the you know, one more topic that I just want to address in all of this is that as as people in the industry and as companies in this industry and potentially companies globally within tech, even outside of tech, all start to feel poor, we're going to face this question of how they start to allocate capital differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably, oh. you know, if I was if I was running a project right now, if that had, you know, done a fundraise last year, et cetera, I would be thinking about, all right, how do we batten down the hatch? Mm-hmm. Now for winter. Because well, you start by having a budget. I have rarely seen companies or projects with with budgets. Um, and you start by not hodling in ETH, actually. <laughs> at, a, at a psychological level, I get it, though, because in a way, I think if you sold ETH, um, number one, it would have dragged down the market. But number two, I think people felt this need because of ideology to be exposed to the market itself, which turned out to be a terrible idea. And like I told you, I mean, on the crypto treasury side, um, spent a lot of time this year thinking about that, working on that. But at the end of the day, um, all industries are financial engineering industries. Ultimately, the way companies make money is through financial engineering. It's buying and selling things and then finding creative ways to bookkeep an account for them to um, optimize taxes. I won't say avoid taxes. It's a bad word. We're going to say to optimize taxes, to optimize the cost of carrying capital and to um, optimize your risk adjusted um, return rate. And I think that's one of the things that's really challenging crypto is people don't price risk. And I've been working on some different risk frameworks where we actually start to take into account the illiquidity of some of these assets. The And when I say illiquidity, I mean your inability to sell at or near the price that you bought. That's really what liquidity means. It doesn't mean that there's volume on a market. It's totally different. It's the ability to sustain price, 
right? And in this market, we don't see sustained prices because a little bit of movement in either direction creates a lot of slippage. And so I think, again, um, we we really are starting to focus on the underpinnings of businesses, which is, is finance. It starts with the balance sheet. It starts with all of these really boring things that you probably slept through in accounting. I happen to love corporate finance. I'm like, yay. Um, I just gave a talk at the CFA Institute about the the fundamentals of crypto finance and the evolving finance function with this new asset. Um, there's some things that are new, but there's some stuff we already know. Like, Let's go back to what we already know. Coast, Fama, um, these economists, we've, we've already examined and studied these things. We have empirical evidence to substantiate how incentives historically have worked. We can look at new ways of structuring incentives using this new mental model of, of cryptocurrencies and tokens and blockchain-based assets. But fundamentally, um, the business model hasn't changed. We're asking ourselves, can we change the business model instead of selling users like Facebook and Google? Can we not do that? But that's still a big if we haven't proven that thesis yet. And until that experiment has run its course and until we've gathered evidence, like there is no yeah, information I, to substantiate that. I, I want to back up on that for a second because like on some level, I still struggle with like, what are we even talking about? The business model of crypto? Like, it, okay, sure. If you're an exchange, you have a business model. Sure. If you're a mining company, you have a business model. Yep. If you are providing a service, if you are a PR firm within crypto, if you are creating products like Ledger or Trezor or whatever, you have business model. But if you are an open source protocol that has a token, you don't have a business model. Sure. You don't have revenue stream. But arguably, isn't that the grand experiment here? The, the big experiment with crypto to me is, is there a way to create different incentive structures that don't rely on traditional business models? And I think, again, the way we utilize technology, really what it is, is trying to create innovative new business models. Fundamentally, businesses run on, you know, they earn income, they earn revenue from some type of activity, service, good they provide. They have a cost of providing that. And at the end of the day, they have to make sure that they have more revenue than than cost. I still I still kind of come back to That's my, my <laughs> like age-old question <laughs> on this, though, which is, then why use the blockchain? That's a great question. Like they should be issuing equity. Absolutely. Um, but some, I think some businesses couldn't raise equity. I know a lot of people like to joke about how dumb VCs are and about anyone with a deck could go to Silicon Valley and raise millions of dollars. It actually doesn't work like that. Um, and I think the reason people resorted to ICOs is they were raising money for things that wouldn't have gotten capitalized by VCs. So at the end of the day, this is a question about the cost of capital and the cost of capital for doing crypto projects was super, super low. We've got to ask ourselves, though, if even the VCs aren't touching it, might not be a great idea. But you're introducing, like, I, I don't want to be skeptical about all of this because I think we explored some very important questions about who has the right to invest. Should retail investors be allowed to buy cryptocurrencies? Like, and, and really the question is, we have all of these rules that govern how our financial system works. And you and I always like to joke, like the rules, if anything, have made the game more crooked. And with ICOs, the question was, can we democratize capital raising? Can we democratize what investors can be exposed to? And look, while the evidence is overwhelmingly pointing in one direction. I do think these are valuable experiments. I just don't think we should have run them the way we did. And we're all culpable in that, myself in included, because I funded projects that raise money via SAFTS. I know you don't talk about it, yeah. but you did as well. And a lot of people who are on and you know talk a lot of shit about things, um, they were doing those deals too. So we were all a part of it. And what we've learned is it doesn't work. So let's figure out what does, because these are important questions. 
I think, yeah. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll start to kind of bring this home here, but I think that for me, I just can't help but continue to draw the parallel to 2000, 2001. And it sounds like a tired parallel, but it's true in the sense that that was one of the only other times that we've had very high risk, what would normally be seed stage companies. Capitalized in this way. Capitalized Insane. in such a way that, well, capitalized in the sense of how much they were able to raise, but also in terms of who their investor base was, which is retail. But they had business models. And here's the thing. In order to do an IPO, which many of these companies did, you have to file offering documents. And offering documents require budgets. They require business plans. You had to have no matter how bad or how untrue, you had to have a basic idea of a revenue model. The problem here is no one has any expectation of any sort of workable business model. And again, um, I don't I don't mean that to sound like a criticism because we all need to do the work to figure out like, what is, what is this? How do we evaluate this? Maybe the business model is totally different and we don't understand it yet. But I just, I keep going back to fundamentals. Um, you know what? The Romans had it all figured out, Jill. Like, uh, Tell me. I, I'm a classicist. And I'm I know, curious I know you as to are. what the hell you mean by that. Um, so, you know, I, I like to read um, things and just give my mind some room, room to run around non-crypto stuff. Um, but going back to, you know, reading a lot of what the, <laughs> the Greeks and the Romans um, wrote about, you know, we've seen this before. Like humans are so predictable in so many ways. We go through these cycles where we just do the same stuff, but in different ways. Like we're doing all the same stuff. We're living these loops just in different ways. And to me, that's the interesting parallel here is I feel like we're in another loop. And some people have seen it before. Some people haven't. But we're just stuck in this series of loops. Like this is what funding innovation is. When I think about what I spend time on, what excites me, it's like, let's figure out if we can break the loop, come up with a new business model. But at the end of the day, things have always worked the same way. These patterns aren't new. These patterns have been repeated thousands of times in history, and they've been documented in different asset classes, in different investment bubbles, different times in history. And the means and the mechanisms were different. But we had bubbles in the 1600s with people buying tulips. We had bubbles with people buying railroad stock in the 1800s. I was going to say, I think maybe the only parallel to ancient Rome was uh, the age of Nero when there was just excess flowing in the streets. Yes. And you hear about these crazy excessive feasts that people would have. and But another uh, one of my favorite quotes is um, the road to access leads to the palace of wisdom. Right. I'll have to source <laughs> that quote. Um, but but it that's, you know, that's where I think we're at is, um, yes, we've made mistakes and we've all done dumb stuff. So I guess, you know, I am dumb. I do dumb, dumb stuff from time to time. But just because we mess some things up doesn't mean we need to throw out the experiment entirely. Because I do think there are really valuable things happening that are going to impact, I personally believe it will impact everyone that lives on this planet um, and the future of how society and markets work. And now I sound like an idealist, but you know, we have to get it right and we have to do some critical thinking and people don't like it. People, I feel like in crypto, it's like uncool to change your mind and that makes you a cheater somehow. But I change my mind about stuff all the time because I learn and learning is the process of assimilating new information to adjust your mental models. And if we don't learn and adapt and grow up, it's not going to happen. It's it's that great Winston Churchill quote, right? When the facts change, uh, I change. What would you have me do? <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I think that that's, that's spot on. And I think that, you know, as we've been talking about for the last hour or so now, 
the facts may be changing. I think that the facts of the macro market are changing the facts of how we need to look at deals and how we need to uh-huh. think critically about where value lies in the crypto industry is changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, all, that's all being said with Bitcoin at 3,500. So we'll but, see where we go from here. But we have found this little nugget of something, right? Like there's something here that's so compelling that despite losing tons of money, all of these people who came in in 2017, 2018, who were motivated by speculation, they're not leaving, they're staying. And they're ideologically invested, which I think is really unique. And that in and of itself has tremendous value politically, socially, um, economically, philosophically, There is a critical mass of people here who believe in a set of ideas. And it sounds so hokey, um, but but it matters. There is something here that we have been experimenting with. We're not doing it in a very sophisticated way. We need to evolve the experimentation. That's what I'm working on as an investor. And that's why I share everything I do. Like I want to share what I'm learning and learn from other people. But it's happening. Like there's something we've uncovered that is worth working on. And and yeah, and to to wrap up on that optimistic note, you know, so again, we're coming to you from Consensus Invest. And if you had told me five years ago in the last kind of crypto bear market that Mohammed al Arian would be speaking on stage about cryptocurrency, I would have told you to get out. Like, I would not have believed you in 2014. And, you know, maybe maybe he was paid by consensus to be here. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that. But the fact that we have people of that caliber of you know, the the former CIO of PIMCO, mm. uh, the managing director of the IMF, uh, the mm. the head of Fidelity, Ab- Ab- Abigail Johnson. These types of, of people in the financial world starting to take this seriously. I think that, as you put it, Meltem, it's a sign that there is a nugget there, despite what prices are doing today. And uh Growth is painful. Growth is never linear. And maybe in order to move forwards, we'll go backwards. But we'll be here. I think there's a lot more to uncover, a lot more to unpack. um, But it has to be done with substance and with rigor. It can't be done in this hand-wavy, esoteric, feel-good kind of way. It has to be substantiated by empirical evidence. Like The world operates on, on data. We need proof. And so I think um, for me, it's certainly been a lesson of how I'm going to change some of how I operate. But at the end of the day, um, risk and reward are an interesting thing, right? Uh, we have taken tremendous amount of risk. We continue to take a tremendous amount of risk because we believe there is a reward in doing so, whether the reward is financial or social or is purely purpose driven by whatever journey each person in this community is, is on, but people are taking the risk. So, um, I think we'll continue to learn a lot of you things. You and I will still be here anyway. <laughs> I'll be we sleeping. Might, yeah, we might be coming to you from my couch, but we'll yes. still be here. Well, I'm now going to have a, a couch. So fingers crossed, I'm going to be a homeowner at some point, um, which is a terrifying prospect. Bull market. Bull market, baby. <laughs> uh, actually not. No, it's not crypto related. Um, you know, Jill, I actually I operate in the world of, of cash, um, which is interesting. It's not crypto related. But I think, again, um, we'll be here. We'll be hanging out on couches. Maybe we can have a glass of red wine once in a while. But instead of having nice wine, we can have wine out of a box. I don't mind. (laughs) I'll drink it just the same. Um, So look, if we go from champagne to beer for a while, I think we'll be the better for it. Um, 
and this unfettered orgy of excess, if you will. <laughs> Maybe Nero's reign is ending and we're moving to something a little bit more pragmatic and a little bit more uh, down to earth. We're moving to the dark ages. <laughs> no, no, no. We're in the Enlightenment. Um, well, it feels like the Inquisition is coming, but we'll save that for another time. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time. All right. Well, hopefully uh, we did not bore you to tears. I feel sometimes like I'm so boring. Do you ever feel that you way? You never. Sorry. I, I get excited about like gross, boring balance sheets. I'm like, oh, let's talk about balance sheets. It's so fun. Finance. Most most people in the world find it boring. This is a discovery I only made when I moved to Silicon Valley. But I was like, you don't want to hear about my days as a bond trader? What's wrong with you? There's a lot of value in that. Knowing how company like how a company runs knowing how finance works knowing how valuations get created you have to understand value creation whether it's true value creation or whether it's done on paper like there are a lot of games you can play and a lot of companies play those games very well we've we've seen this time and time again um you have to understand it you have to go back to fundamentals and ask yourself what do i know to be true about the world and you have to apply that Speculators are not users. Raising money is not an accomplishment. Um, building companies that make money consistently is really hard and, and deliver a product or service. And keep an eye on the rest of the world and yes. what they're doing and what, what other asset classes are doing. As Read well. the tea leaves. Yep. Hi, everyone. Meltem and Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.